This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Napoleon of Notting Hill by G. K. Chesterton Section 12 Book 4 Chapter 3 The Great Army of South Kensington The article from the special correspondent of the Court Journal arrived in due course written on very coarse copy paper in the King's Arabesque of handwriting in which three words filled a page and yet were illegible. Moreover, the contribution was the more perplexing at first as it opened with a succession of erased paragraphs. The writer appeared to have attempted the article once or twice in several journalistic styles. At the side of one experiment was written, Try American Style, and the fragment began, The king must go, we want gritty men, flapdoodle is all very, and then broke off, followed by the note, Good sound journalism safer, try it. The experiment in good sound journalism appeared to begin. The greatest of English poets has said that a rose by any. This also stopped abruptly. The next annotation at the side was almost undecipherable, but seemed to be something like, How about old Stevens and the Mott Justs, uh, e.g.? Morning winked a little wearily at me over the curt edge of Camden Hill and its houses with their sharp shadows. Under the abrupt black cardboard of the outline it took some little time to detect colors, but at length I saw a brownish-yellow shifting in the obscurity, and I knew that it was the guard of Swindon's West Kensington Army. They are being held as a reserve and lining the whole ridge above the Bayswater Road. Their camp and their main force is under the great waterworks tower on Camden Hill. I forgot to say that the waterworks tower looks swart. As I passed them and came over the curve of Silver Street, I saw the blue cloudy masses of Barker's men blocking the entrance to the high road like a sapphire smoke. Good. The disposition of the Allied troops under the general management of Mr. Wilson appears to be as follows. The Yellow Army, if I may so describe the West Kensingtonians, lies, as I have said, in a strip along the ridge, its furthest point westward being the west side of Camden Hill Road, its furthest point eastward the beginning of Kensington Gardens. The Green Army of Wilson lines the Notting Hill High Road itself from Queen's Road to the corner of Pembridge Road, curving round the latter and extending some three hundred yards up towards Westbourne Grove. Westbourne Grove itself is occupied by Barker of South Kensington. The fourth side of this rough square, the Queen's Road side, is held by some of Buck's purple warriors. The whole resembles some ancient and dainty Dutch flower-bed. Along the crest of Camden Hill lie the golden crocuses of West Kensington. They are, as it were, the first fiery fringe of the whole. Northward lies our hyacinth Barker with all his blue hyacinths, Round to the southwest run the green rushes of Wilson of Bayswater and a line of violet irises, aptly symbolized by Mr. Buck, complete the whole. The argent exterior, I am losing the style, I should have said curving with a whisk instead of merely curving. Also I should have called the hyacinths sudden. I cannot keep this up. War is too rapid for this style of writing. Please ask office boy to insert Mont Justs. 
The truth is that there is nothing to report. That commonplace element which is always ready to devour all beautiful things, as the black pig in the Irish mythology will finally devour the stars and gods, that commonplace element, as I say, has in its black piggish way devoured finally the chances of any romance in this affair. That which once consisted of absurd but thrilling combats in the streets has degenerated into something which is the very prose of warfare. It has degenerated into a siege. A siege may be defined as a peace, plus the inconvenience of war. Of course, Wayne cannot hold out. There is no more chance of help from anywhere else than of ships from the moon. And if old Wayne had stocked his street with tinned meats till all his garrison had to sit on them, he couldn't hold out for more than a month or two. As a matter of melancholy fact, he has done something rather like this. He has stocked the street with food until there must be uncommonly little room to turn around. But what is the good? To hold out for all that time and then to give in of necessity. What does it mean? It means waiting until your victories are forgotten and then taking the trouble to be defeated. I cannot understand how Wayne can be so inartistic. And how odd it is. Yet one views a thing quite differently when one knows it is defeated. I always thought Wayne was rather fine. But now when I know that he is done for, there seems to be nothing else but Wayne. All the streets seem to point at him. All the chimneys seem to lean towards him. I suppose it is a morbid feeling, but Pump Street seems to be the only part of London that I feel physically. I suppose, I say, that is morbid. I suppose it is exactly how a man feels about his heart when his heart is weak. Pump Street, the heart is a pump, and I am driveling. Our finest leader at the front is, beyond all question, General Wilson. He has adopted alone among the other provosts the uniform of his own halberdiers, although that fine old sixteenth-century garb was not originally intended to go with red side whiskers. It was he who, against a most admirable and desperate defence, broke last night into Pump Street, and held it for at least half an hour. He was afterwards expelled from it by General Turnbull of Notting Hill, but only after desperate fighting and the sudden descent of that terrible darkness, which proved so much more fatal to the forces of General Buck and General Swindon. Provost Wayne himself, with whom I had, with great good fortune, a most interesting interview, bore the most eloquent testimony to the conduct of General Wilson and his men. His precise words are as follows. I have bought sweets at his funny little shop when I was four years old, and ever since I never noticed anything, I am ashamed to say, except that he talked through his nose and didn't wash himself particularly and he came over to our barricade like a devil from hell. I repeated this speech to General Wilson himself, and with some delicate improvements, and he seemed pleased with it. He does not, however, seem pleased with anything so much just now as he is with wearing a sword. I have it from the front on the best authority that General Wilson was not completely shaved yesterday. It is believed in military circles that he is growing a mustache. As I have said, there is nothing to report. I walked wearily to the pillar-box at the corner of Pembridge Road to post my copy. Nothing whatever has happened except the preparations for a particularly long and feeble siege, during which I trust I shall not be required to be at the front. 
As I glance up Pembridge Road in the growing dusk, the aspect of that road reminds me that there is one note worth adding. General Buck has suggested, with characteristic acumen, to General Wilson, that in order to obviate the possibility of such a catastrophe as overwhelmed the Allied forces in the last advance on Notting Hill, the catastrophe, I mean, of the extinguished lamps, each soldier should have a lighted lantern round his neck. This is one of the things which I really admire about General Buck. He possesses what people used to mean by the humility of the man of science. That is, he learns steadily from his mistakes. Wayne may score off him in some other way, but not in that way. The lanterns look like fairy lights as they curve round the end of Pembridge Road. Later. I write with some difficulty because the blood will run down my face and make patterns on the paper. Blood is a very beautiful thing. That is why it is concealed. If you ask why blood runs down my face, I can only reply that I was kicked by a horse. If you ask me what horse, I can reply with some pride that it was a war horse. If you ask me how a war horse came on the scene in our simple pedestrian warfare, I am reduced to the necessity so painful to a special correspondent of recounting my experiences. I was, as I have said, in the very act of posting copy at the pillar box and of glancing as I did so up the glittering curve of Pembridge Road, studded with the lights of Wilson's men. I don't know what made me pause to examine the matter, but I had a fancy that the line of lights, where it melted into the indistinct brown twilight, was more indistinct than usual. I was almost certain that in a certain stretch of the road where there had been five lights there were now only four. I strained my eyes, I counted them again, and there were only three. A moment after there were only two, an instant after only one, and an instant after that the lanterns near to me swung like jangled bells as if struck suddenly. They flared and fell, and for the moment the fall of them was like the fall of the sun the stars out of the heaven. It left everything in a primal blindness. As a matter of fact, the road was not yet legitimately dark. There were still red rays of a sunset in the sky, and the brown gloaming was still warmed, as it were, with a feeling as a firelight. But for three seconds after the lantern swung and sank, I saw in front of me a blackness blocking the sky. And with the fourth second I knew that this blackness which blocked the sky was a man on a great horse, and I was trampled and tossed aside as a swirl of horsemen swept round the corner. And as they turned I saw that they were not black but scarlet. They were a sortie of the besieged, Wayne riding ahead. I lifted myself from the gutter, blinded with blood from a very slight skin wound, and, queerly enough, not caring either for the blindness or for the slightness of the wound, for one mortal minute after that amazing cavalcade had spun past, there was dead stillness on the empty road, and then came Barker and all his halberdiers, running like devils in the track of them. It had been their business to guard the gate by which the sortie had broken out, but they had not reckoned, and small blame to them, on cavalry. As it was, Barker and his men made a perfectly splendid run after them, almost catching Wayne's horses by the tails. Nobody can understand the sortie. It consists only of a small number of Wayne's garrison. 
Turnbull himself, with the vast mass of it, is undoubtedly still barricaded in Pump Street. Sorties of this kind are natural enough in the majority of historical sieges, such as the Siege of Paris in 1870, because in such cases the besieged are certain of some support outside. But what can be the object of it in this case? Wayne knows, or if he is too mad to know anything, at least Turnbull knows, that there is not and never has been the smallest chance of support for him outside, that the mass of the sane modern inhabitants of London regard this farcical patriotism with as much contempt as they do the original idiocy that gave it birth, the folly of our miserable king. What Wayne and his horsemen are doing nobody can even conjecture. The general theory round here is that he is simply a traitor and has abandoned the besieged. But all such larger but yet more soluble riddles are as nothing compared with the one small but unanswerable riddle. Where did they get the horses? Later I have heard a most extraordinary account of the origin of the appearance of the horses. It appeared that the amazing person, General Turnbull, who is now ruling Pump Street in the absence of Wayne, sent out on the morning of the declaration of war a vast number of little boys or cherubs of the gutter, as we pressmen say, with half-crowns in their pockets to take cabs all over London. No less than a hundred and sixty cabs met at Pump Street, were commandeered by the garrison. The men were set free, the cabs used to make barricades, and the horses kept in Pump Street where they were fed and exercised for several days until they were sufficiently rapid and efficient to be used for this wild ride out of the town. If this is so, and I have it on the best possible authority, the method of the sortie is explained, but we have no explanation of its object. Just as Barker's blues were swinging round the corner after them, they were stopped, but not by an enemy, only by the voice of one man, and he a friend. Red Wilson of Bayswater ran alone along the main road like a madman, waving them back with a halberd snatched from a sentinel. He was in supreme command, and Barker stopped at the corner, staring and bewildered. We could hear Wilson's voice, loud and distinct, out of the dusk, so that it seemed strange that the great voice should come out of the little body. Halt, South Kensington! Guard this entry, and prevent them returning. I will pursue. Forward the green guards. A wall of dark blue uniforms and a wood of pole-axes was between me and Wilson for Barker's men blocked the mouth of the road in two rigid lines. But through them and through the dusk I could hear the clear orders and the clank of arms, and see the green army of Wilson marching by toward the west. They were our great fighting men. Wilson had filled them with his own fire. In a few days they had become veterans. Each of them wore a silver medal of a pump, to boast that they alone of all the Allied armies had stood victorious in Pump Street. I managed to slip past the detachment of Barker's Blues, who are guarding the end of Pembridge Road, and a sharp spell of running brought me to the tail of Wilson's Green Army as it swung down the road in pursuit of the flying wain. The dusk had deepened into an almost total darkness. For some time I only heard the throb of the marching pace. Then suddenly there was a cry, and the tall fighting men were flung back on me, almost crushing me 
and again the lantern swung and jingled and the cold nozzles of great horses pushed into the precipice they had turned and charged us you fools came the voice of wilson cleaving our panic with a splendid cold anger don't you see the horses have no riders it was true we were being plunged at by a stampede of horses with empty saddles what could it mean had wayne met some of our men and been defeated or had he flung these horses at us at some kind of ruse or mad new mode of warfare such as he seemed bent on inventing or did he and his men want to get away in disguise or did they want to hide in houses somewhere never did i admire any man's intellect even my own so much as i did wilson's at that moment without a word he simply pointed the halberd which he still grasped to the southern side of the road as you know the streets running up to the ridge of camden hill from the main road are peculiarly steep they are more like sudden flights of stairs we were just opposite aubrey road the steepest of all up that it would have been far more difficult to urge half-trained horses than to run up on one's feet left wheel hallooed wilson they have gone up here he added to me who happened to be at his elbow why i ventured to ask can't say for certain replied the bayswater general they've gone up here in a great hurry anyhow they simply turned their horses loose because they couldn't take them up i fancy i know i fancy they're trying to get over the ridge to kensington or hammersmith or somewhere and are striking up here because it's just beyond the end of our line damn fools not to have gone further along the road though they've only just shaved our last outpost lambert is hardly four hundred yards from here and i've sent him word lambert i said not young wilfred lambert my old friend wilfred lambert's his name said the general used to be a man about town silly fellow with a big nose that kind of man always volunteers for some war or other and what's funnier he generally isn't half bad at it lambert is distinctly good the yellow west kensingtons i always reckoned the weakest part of my army but he has pulled them together uncommonly well though he's subordinate to swindon who's a donkey in the attack from pembridge road the other night he showed great pluck he has shown greater pluck than that i said he has criticized my sense of humour that was his first engagement this remark was i am sorry to say lost on the admirable commander of the allied forces we were in the act of climbing the last half of aubrey road which is so abrupt a slope that it looks like an old-fashioned map leaning up against the wall there are lines of little trees one above the other as in the old-fashioned map we reached the top of it panting somewhat and we were just about to turn a corner by a place called in chivalrous anticipation of our wars of sword and axe tower creasy when we were suddenly knocked in the stomach i can use no other term by a horde of men hurled back upon us they wore the red uniform of wayne their halberds were broken their foreheads bleeding but the mere impetus of their retreat staggered us as we stood at the last ridge of the slope good old lambert yelled out suddenly and stolid mr wilson of bayswater in an uncontrollable excitement damn jolly old lambert he's got there already he's driving them back on us hurrah hurrah forward the green guards we swung round the corner eastwards wilson running first brandishing the halberd 
Will you pardon a little egotism? Everyone likes a little egotism when it takes the form of his mind does, in this case, of a disgraceful confession. The thing is really a little interesting because it shows how the merely artistic habit has bitten into men like me. It was the most intensely exciting occurrence that has ever come to me in my life, and I was really intensely excited about it. And yet, as we turned that corner, the first impression I had was of something that had not to do with the fight at all. I was stricken from the sky as by a thunderbolt, by the height of the waterworks tower on Camden Hill. I don't know whether Londoners generally realize how high it looks when one comes out in this way, almost immediately under it. For the second it seems to me that at the foot of it even human war was a triviality. For the second I felt as if I had been drunk with some trivial orgy, and that I had been sobered by the shock of that great shadow. A moment afterwards I realized that under it was going on something more enduring than stone, and something wilder than the dizziest height, the agony of man. And I knew that, compared to that, this overwhelming tower was itself a triviality. It was a mere stalk of stone which humanity could snap like a stick. I don't know why I have talked so much about this silly old waterworks tower, which at the very best was only a tremendous background. It was that, certainly, a somber and awful landscape, against which our figures were relieved. But I think the real reason was that there was in my own mind so sharp a transition from the tower of stone to the man of flesh. For what I saw first, when I had shaken it off, as it were, the shadow of the tower, was a man, and a man I knew. Lambert stood at the further corner of the street that curved round the tower, his figure outlined in some degree by the beginning of a moonrise. He looked magnificent, a hero, but he looked something much more interesting than that. He was, as it happened, in almost precisely the same swaggering attitude in which he had stood nearly fifteen years ago when he swung his walking stick and struck it into the ground and told me that all my subtlety was drivel and upon my soul I think he required more courage to say that than to fight as he does now. For then he was fighting against something that was in the ascendant, fashionable and victorious, and now he is fighting, at the risk of his life no doubt, merely against something which is already dead, and which is impossibly futile, of which nothing has been more impossible and futile than this very sortie which has brought him into contact with it. People nowadays allow infinitely too little for the psychological sense of victory as a factor in affairs. Then he was attacking the degraded but undoubtedly victorious Quinn. Now he is attacking the interesting but totally extinguished Wayne. His name recalls to me the details of the scene. The facts were these. A line of red halberdiers headed by Wayne were marching up the street close under the northern wall, which is in fact the bottom of a sort of dike or fortification of the waterworks. Lambert and his yellow West Kensingtons had that instant swept round the corner and had just shaken the Wainites heavily, hurling back a few of the more timid, as I have just described, into our very arms. When our force struck the tail of Wayne's, everyone knew that all was up with him. His favorite military barber was struck down, his grocer was stunned, he himself was hurt in the thigh and reeled back against the wall. 
we had him in a trap with two jaws. "'Is that you?' shouted Lambert genially to Wilson across the hemmed-in host of Notting Hill. "'That's about the ticket,' replied General Wilson. "'Keep them under the wall.' The men of Notting Hill were falling fast. Adam Wayne threw up his long arms to the wall above him, and with a spring stood upon it, a gigantic figure against the moon. He tore the banner out of the hands of the standard-bearer below him, and shook it out suddenly above our heads, so that it was like thunder in the heavens. "'Round the Red Lion!' he cried. "'Swords round the Red Lion! Halberds round the Red Lion! They are the thorns round rose!' His voice and the crack of the banner made a momentary rally, and Lambert, whose idiotic face was almost beautiful with battle, felt it as by an instinct and cried, "'Drop your public-house flag, you footler! Drop it!' "'The banner of the Red Lion seldom stoops,' said Wayne proudly, letting it out luxuriant in the night wind. The next moment I knew that poor Adam's sentimental theatricality had cost him much. Lambert was on the wall at a bound, his sword at his teeth. He had slashed at Wayne's head before he had time to draw his sword, his hands being busy with the enormous flag. He stepped back only just in time to avoid the first cut, and let the flagstaff fall, so that the spear-blade at the end of it pointed to Lambert. "'The banner stoops!' cried Wayne, in a voice that must have startled streets. "'The banner of Notting Hill stoops to a hero,' and with the words he drove the spear-point and half the flag half through Lambert's body, and dropped him dead upon the road below, a stone upon the stones of the street. "'Notting Hill! Notting Hill!' cried Wayne in a sort of divine rage. "'Her banner is all the holier for the blood of a brave enemy. "'Up on the wall, patriots! Up on the wall! Notting Hill!' With his long, strong arm he actually dragged a man up on the wall to be silhouetted against the moon, and more and more men climbed up there, pulled themselves or were pulled, till clusters and crowds of half-massacred men of Pump Street massed upon the wall above us. Notting Hill! Notting Hill! cried Wayne unceasingly. Well, what about Bayswater? asked a worthy working man in Wilson's army irritably. Bayswater forever! We have won! cried Wayne, striking his flagstaff in the ground. Bayswater forever! We have taught our enemies patriotism. Oh, cut these fellows up and have done with it, cried one of Lambert's lieutenants, who was reduced to something bordering on madness by the responsibility of succeeding to the command. Let us by all means try, said Wilson grimly, and the two armies closed round the third. I simply cannot describe what followed. I'm sorry, but there is such a thing as physical fatigue as physical nausea, and, I may add, as physical terror. Suffice it to say that the above paragraph was written about 11 p.m., and that it is now about 2 a.m., and the battle is not finished, and it is not likely to be. Suffice it further to say that down the steep streets which lead from the waterworks tower to the Notting Hill High Road, blood has been running and is running in great red serpents that curl out into the main thoroughfare and shine in the moon. Later. The final touch has been given to all this terrible futility. Hours have passed. Morning has broken. Men are still swaying and fighting at the foot of the tower and round the corner of Aubrey Road. The fight has not finished. 
but I know it is a farce. News has just come to show that Wayne's amazing sortie, followed by the amazing resistance through a whole night on the wall of the waterworks, as if as it had not been. What was the object of that strange exodus we shall probably never know, for the simple reason that everyone who knew will probably be cut to pieces in the course of the next two or three hours. I have heard about three minutes ago what Buck and Buck's methods have won after all. He was perfectly right, of course, when one comes to think of it, in holding that it was physically impossible for a street to defeat a city, while we thought he was patrolling the eastern gates with his purple army, while we were rushing about the streets and waving halberds and lanterns, while poor old Wilson was scheming like Moltke and fighting like Achilles to entrap the wild provo of Notting Hill. Mr. Buck, retired draper, had simply driven down in a handsome cab and done something about as plain as butter and about as useful and nasty. He has gone down to South Kensington, Brompton, and Fulham, and by spending about four thousand pounds of his private means has raised an army of nearly as many men, that is to say an army big enough to beat not only Wayne, but Wayne and all his present enemies put together. The army, I understand, is encamped along High Street, Kensington, and fills it from the church to Addison Road Bridge. It is to advance by ten different roads uphill to the north. I cannot endure to remain here. Everything makes it worse than it need be. The dawn, for instance, has broken round Camden Hill. Splendid spaces of silver edged with gold are torn out of the sky. Where still Wayne and his men feel the dawn, their faces, though bloody and pale, are strangely hopeful, insupportably pathetic. Worst of all, for the moment, they are winning. If it were not for Buck and the new army, they might just, and only just, win. I repeat, I cannot stand it. It is like watching that wonderful play of old Maeterlinck's. You know my partiality for the healthy, jolly old authors of the nineteenth century, in which one has to watch the quiet conduct of people inside a parlour, while knowing that the very men are outside the door, whose word can blast it all with tragedy. And this is the worse, for the men are not talking, but writhing and bleeding and dropping dead, for a thing that is already settled, and settled against them. The great grey masses of men still toil and tug and sway hither and thither round the great grey tower, and the tower is still motionless, as it always will be motionless. These men will be crushed before the sun is set, and new men will arise and be crushed, and new wrongs done, and tyranny will always rise like the sun, and injustice will always be as fresh as the flowers of spring, and the stone tower will always look down on it. Matter in its brutal beauty will always look down on those who are mad enough to consent to die, and yet more mad since they consent to live. Thus ended abruptly the first and last contribution of the special correspondent of the court journal to that valued periodical. The correspondent himself, as has been said, was simply sick and gloomy at the last news of the triumph of Buck. He slouched sadly down the steep Aubrey Road, up into which he had the night before run in so unusual an excitement, and strolled out into the empty dawn-lit main road, looking vaguely for a cab. He saw nothing in the vacant space except a blue and gold glittering thing running very fast, which looked at first like a very tall beetle, but turned out to his great astonishment 
to be Barker. "'Have you heard the good news?' asked that gentleman. "'Yes,' said Quinn, with a measured voice. "'I have heard the glad tidings of great joy. "'Shall we take a handsome cab down to Kensington? "'I see one over there.' "'They took the cab and were in four minutes "'fronting the ranks of the multitudinous and invincible army. "'Quinn had not spoken a word all the way, "'and something about him had prevented the essentially impressionable Barker from speaking either. The great army, as it moved up Kensington High Street, calling many heads to the numberless windows, for it was long indeed, longer than the lives of most of the tolerably young, since such an army had been in London. Compared with the vast organization, which was now swallowing up the miles, with Buck at its head as leader, and the king hanging at its tail as journalist, the whole story of our problem was insignificant. In the presence of that army, the red Notting Hills and the green Bayswaters were alike tiny and straggling groups. In its presence, the whole struggle round Pump Street was like an anthill under the hoof of an ox. Every man who felt or looked at that infinity of men knew that it was the triumph of Buck's brutal arithmetic, whether Wayne was right or wrong, wise or foolish was quite a fair matter for discussion, but it was a matter of history. At the foot of Church Street opposite Kensington Church, they paused in their glowing good humour. "'Let us send some kind of messenger or herald up to them,' said Buck, turning to Barker and the King. "'Let us send and ask them to cave in without more muddle.' "'What shall we say to them?' said Barker doubtfully. "'The facts of the case are quite sufficient,' rejoined Buck. It is the facts of the case that make an army surrender. Let us simply say that our army that is fighting their army, and their army that is fighting our army, amount altogether about a thousand men. Say that we have four thousand. It is very simple. Of the thousand fighting, they have at the very most three hundred, so that with those three hundred they have now to fight four thousand seven hundred men. Let them do it, if it amuses them and the provost of North Kensington laughed. The herald, who was dispatched up Church Street in all the pomp of the South Kensington blue and gold with the three birds on his tabard, was attended by two trumpeters. What will they do when they consent, asked Barker, for the sake of saying something in the sudden stillness of that immense army? I know my Wayne very well, said Buck, laughing. When he submits, he will send a red herald flaming with the lion of Notting Hill, even defeat will be delightful to him, since it is formal and romantic. The king, who had strolled up to the head of the line, broke silence for the first time. I shouldn't wonder, he said, if he defied you, and didn't send the herald after all. I don't think you do know your Wayne quite so well as you think. All right, your majesty, said Buck easily. If it isn't disrespectful, I'll put my political calculations in a very simple form. I'll lay you ten pounds to a shilling. The herald comes with the surrender. All right, said Auberon. I may be wrong, but it's my notion of Adam Wayne that he'll die in his city, and that, till he's dead, it will not be a safe property. The bet's made, your majesty, said Bucks. Another long silence ensued, in the course of which Barker alone, amid the motionless army, strolled and stamped in his restless way. Then Buck suddenly leant forward. "'It's taking your money, Your Majesty,' he said. "'I knew it was. There comes the herald from Adam Wayne.' 
It's not, cried the king, peering forward also, you brute. It's a red omnibus. It's not, said Buck calmly, and the king did not answer, for down the centre of the spacious and silent church street was walking beyond question the herald of the red lion with two trumpeters. Buck had something in him which taught him how to be magnanimous. In his hour of success he felt magnanimous toward Wayne, whom he really admired, magnanimous toward the king, off whom he had scored so publicly, and above all magnanimous towards Barker, who was the titular head of this vast South Kensington army, which his own talent had evoked. General Barker, he said, bowing, do you propose now to receive the message from the besieged? Barker bowed also, and advanced toward the herald. "'Has your master, Mr. Adam Wayne, received our request for surrender?' he asked. The herald conveyed a solemn and respectful affirmative. Barker resumed, coughing slightly, but encouraged. "'What answer does your master send?' The herald again inclined himself submissively, and answered in a kind of monotone. "'My message is this. Adam Wayne, Lord High Provost of Notting Hill, under the charter of King Auberon and the laws of God and all mankind, free and of a free city, greets James Barker, Lord High Provost of South Kensington, by the same rights, free and honorable, leader of the army of the South. With all friendly reverence and with all constitutional considerations, he desires James Barker to lay down his arms, and the whole army under his command to lay down their arms also. Before the words were ended, the king had run forward into the open space with shining eyes. The rest of the staff and the forefront of the army were literally struck breathless. When they recovered, they began to laugh beyond restraint. The revulsion was too sudden. The Lord High Provost of Notting Hill, continued the herald, does not propose in the event of your surrender to use his victory for any of those repressive purposes which others have entertained against him. He will leave you your free laws and your free cities, your flags and your governments. He will not destroy the religion of South Kensington or crush the old customs of Bayswater. An irrepressible explosion of laughter went up from the forefront of the great army. The king must have had something to do with this humor, said Buck, slapping his thigh. It is too deliciously insolent. Barker, have a glass of wine. And in his conviviality he actually sent a soldier across to the restaurant opposite the church and brought out two glasses for a toast. When the laughter had died down, the herald continued quite monotonously. In the event of your surrendering your arms and dispersing under the superintendence of our forces, these local rights of yours shall be carefully observed. In the event of your not doing so, the Lord High Provost of Notting Hill desires to announce that he has just captured the waterworks tower just above you on Camden Hill, and that within ten minutes from now, that is, on the reception through me of your refusal, he will open the great reservoir and flood the whole valley where you stand in thirty feet of water. God save King Oberon. Buck had dropped his glass and sent a great splash of wine over the road. But, but, he said, and then, by a last and splendid effort of his great sanity, looked the facts in the face. We must surrender, he said. 
you could do nothing against fifty thousand tons of water coming down a steep hill ten minutes hence we must surrender our four thousand men might as well be four Vicisti Galilei. Perkins, you may as well get me another glass of wine. In this way, the vast army of South Kensington surrendered, and the empire of Notting Hill began. One further fact in this connection is perhaps worth mentioning. The fact that after his victory, Adam Wayne caused the great tower on Camden Hill to be plated with gold and inscribed with a great epithet, saying it was the monument of wilfred lambert the heroic defender of the place and surmounted it with a statue in which his large nose was done something less than justice to end of book four chapter three